Welcome to the Run From The Norm podcast. On this podcast, we explore what motivates and inspires unique individuals to embrace creative self-expression, one run and one adventure at a time. I'm your host, Jake Reynolds. Today, it is my great pleasure to introduce you to one of my closest friends, the cold plunge king and running philosopher himself, Wayne Rancourt. This episode is a fun one as we cover wide-ranging topics like how to find purpose where there is none, why it's so important to be present in the moment, and the personal growth that comes from doing really hard things. Please join me for this inspirational conversation with one of the most authentic people I know, someone who not only talks the talk, but without question, walks the walk. It's time to run from the norm. Are recording Wayne Rancourt. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me today. We had a had a nice little chilly morning run, and uh, I'd like to start off by asking you if your life had a soundtrack to it. What would be the title track to your life? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, stumped you right out of the, the gate. Yeah, you did stump me out of the <laughs> gate. Well, well, it's funny because I have two two ringtones. One of them is. Molly Hatchet flirting with disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and then my wake-up song is Jimmy Buffett, Why Don't We Get Drunk and Screw? So, oh, <laughs> take so somewhere, though, somewhere between flirting with the disaster and dreaming of waking up to Jimmy Buffett is probably uh, well, with, combine, with a little Elton thrown in there on uh, Madman Across the Water. Oh, that's funny. We'll combine them all. Well, let's, um, I'm kind of curious if you could share a little bit of how you um, got into running. Because as I was going through your ultra sign-up, you've done some some pretty big adventures. You've ran Leadville, Hard Rock, Vermont, Western States, UTMB. Um, where did the running kind of come into play for you? So I ran a little bit as a youngster. I didn't really do much exercise through high school and college. And certainly nothing that was like scheduled. Uh, just more ad hoc. And then I started working for Boise Cascade in 1983 as an internal auditor. And when I interviewed for that job, the, the that was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. Oh, really? Um, was flying to Boise for that interview. So <laughs> for better or for worse, when I started that job, they had us on an expense account. So the ability to go out to restaurants, drink whatever you wanted um, and have it paid for, I ended up putting on quite a bit of weight. And I remember in my early 20s, going to the doctor and he said, you know, keep up what you're doing and I'll see you when you're 30 and I'll put you on high blood pressure medicine. And there was a couple of guys at work that ran at the noon hour. So I decided to jump in with them a couple of days because I'd run with one of them when we were traveling. Occasionally we'd go do like four or five miles. So I started jumping in with them and running at lunch and then met a gentleman that ran out of the YMCA on Saturday mornings at seven and joined their group. And between like age 24 and 27, I ended up dropping from like 178, 180 pounds down to the low 150s. Holy smokes. And one of the guys that, again, that I worked with told me I should try running Roby Creek. So I ran Roby Creek for the first time in 1987 and just about killed me. But that that was my first half marathon. And from then I got the bug between the guys on Saturday morning at the Y that were doing anywhere from 18 to 20 miles on the weekend. Oh, Did that, the was guys that just crazy to you when you first heard about it? The first couple of months they buried me. They just <laughs> absolutely buried me because they were running from the downtown YMCA out to Eagle Hills Golf Course. They would run the Siemens Golf Dump Loop, so lots of hills. They would go run up towards the Ridge Road in the foothills 
And was this the Y Striders? Uh, a lot of them were the Y Striders. There was a few of us that were just interlopers that never officially joined the club. But yeah, it was Jim Cooper, Tom Blaine, Kurt Wiles, all these guys that were marathoners. They were the guys that started the over and back for Roby Creek. It was, oh, it was that, okay. that set of crazies. And so that became my routine is every Saturday morning getting up and meeting these guys at seven and gals. There were several gals, Maggie Sup, and others that were in the group. And and it's now been 30 years plus of going every Doing Saturday every morning. Saturday. And pretty much I can count on somebody being there at 7 a.m. And there's a, a relatively consistent core. And, you know, people generally hang with the group until they hit their mid-50s or 60, and then they drop out. And occasionally we'll get somebody new in. Usually there's not very many people that are under 30. So it has morphed into this crowd that's mostly in their 40s and 50s. And who and still just run like goats, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of them are like so, amazingly fast. Yeah, One of them, I, I know you interviewed uh, Sid Sullivan. He, he ran a five minute mile on his 50th birthday. So that's impressive. And yeah. even on our run uh, this Saturday, this last Saturday run, uh, we're going up you know, steep hills and he's just you know, bouncing right up, keeping conversation along the way. And yeah, it's absolutely impressive. Yeah. So for me, it was that that threat of you're going to be on high blood pressure medicine by the time you're 30 mixed with once I got in with this group of people on the weekends, it, it just became a ritual. And then just being in awe of these people being able to run sub three hour marathons or just the pace on Roby Creek and, and wanting to get to the point where I could hang with them with some level of dignity. And then of course it was, Gee, well, I wonder what it would be like to try to do a Roby Creek over and back. I, I mean, I've I've almost killed myself just doing it one way. So what would it be like to try to do it both ways? So then it, it started to internalize and become more of just the self-challenge of what, you know, what's the next dumb thing you could come what up with? What are you capable of? Yeah, what's the next dumb thing you could come up with to try just, just to see if you can? And so w- would you say that that was your first real longer race challenge in is doing that out and back uh, for Roby then? Yeah, I mean, we I had done um, a marathon which the first one I did, my buddy Kurt Wiles had done several um, and everybody talks about hitting the wall. So I had it in my head, okay, so what is this like? First one I went out and I ran, um, it was the one in, in Boise, the great potato. Mm-hmm. Started out at Lucky Peak, got to 17 miles, was still sub seven pace, under three hour pace. And I thought, you know, how bad is this? And then I got to one of the water stations and they didn't have fluids. They had run out because of some of the other races that were going on the same day. Oh no. And I got to mile 20, started to slow down a little bit. And then when I got um, to like 22, 23, I, I then understood what it was like to hit the wall. Cause I literally went from running like seven ten pace to over 12. And, oh my gosh! And and scooting. By the time I got to the stadium, uh, it's all you could do to move at that know, point. Doing the last lap inside BSU Stadium was all I could do to crawl the last lap. I got to the end, leg cramps, dry heaves, and I thought, ah, okay, so that's what the wall is in the marathon. And and by the way, I didn't make the sub three. That, <laughs> that looked so so in the bag at 17 miles. So it just completely blew up the last four miles. And I was like, okay, now I gotta now I gotta do that again. Um, so then I went and ran Goodwill Games in Seattle and kind of had a similar experience. I got towards the very end and I thought I was going to make sub three, got to like 22 
another incredibly hot day. And are you training for these or are you just kind of, is it? Yeah. I mean, I was at that point I had started doing intervals on the track with a guy named Kurt Wiles and that helped a lot in terms of just picking up the pace and just, um, aerobic capacity. And, and frankly, just the, the mental resilience because doing track work with Kurt was just absolutely killer. Um, but yeah, I would train combination of speed work to get the leg strength. And then I would try to bump my mileage up to maybe 50 miles a week, 60 miles a week, and then have a couple runs that were 20 miles. But I was by no means doing the core marathon thing where you're out doing like 70 or 80 miles and well, it's still, you're whatever. still putting in a bulk of miles and, you know, 50 miles. And if you're doing a 20 mile long, long run, I mean, you're, you're putting in the effort for sure. Well, I was working and I had kids and I had a job where I traveled all the time. So just trying to stay balanced in terms of commitment to family. And I've got a question on that. So as a professional, you moved your way through to where you found yourself actually in the executive level. How are you finding a way to balance all these things when you have such high work demands that you have to you know, maintain responsibility for? You're trying to maintain commitment to your family and still having this opportunity to get out and, and run. How do, how do you balance that? What does that look like? Well, it's interesting because I think running saved my marriage. Oh, really? <laughs> Probably saved my job and, and certainly in terms of my own self-fulfillment was, was a big deal. But for me, having the, the locker room at Boise Cascade and in the middle of the day, being able to get out for an hour and just tune out and no electronic devices, no anything, just be out in nature and process thoughts, um, burn off whatever, whatever had built up for stress in the first half of the day. And when I was on, on the road traveling, it was a great way to get out and explore cities, find restaurants, just see what was there. But Mm -hmm. it became, um, almost like this meditative process. And everybody talks about the runner's high and the endorphins. I'm sure there's an addiction quality to it as well. Yeah. But it got to the point if I was having a bad day or things were really stressful or whatever, and Wendy would tell me, "Go run, you know, go go out." I it's had time my, for you to head out. There yeah, I had, my, <laughs> I had my boss tell me that several times. Why don't, you, why don't you go for a run and then come back and we'll, you know, we'll talk when you get back. Um, and and a lot of times I, I would know that feeling on my own, and it was just like if I can get out for an hour, go hit the foothills. Uh, that was one of the advantages of working at Boise Cascade. It was close to the Boise foothills. So I could be on trails all the time or running along the green belt and having that escape in nature. And now that I've more or less retired, you know, doing that in the early mornings and catching the sunrise and that golden hour, it, yeah. it's just in terms of the psychic benefits, the, the physical part is interesting in terms of strength and weight and all that other stuff. But for me, the the running thing has been so much more of the mental and emotional yeah well-being and stability. And then the other thing is just gratefulness in terms of really being in tune with what I'm seeing, you know, whether it's sunflowers or a really interesting beetle. And I know that sounds weird, but just watching bees, watching occasional deer and elk and whatever. I mean, it's just, we're so fortunate in what we're surrounded by. And and Boise, just in terms of the four seasons, it's just an incredible place to run. And within, you know, five minutes, you can be out and have solitude. Yeah, and it's just yeah, it's pretty amazing. For me, the the mental restoration is huge. I love seeing your pictures because you're very thoughtful in pictures that you'll take and you'll share on social media, and then the story that you'll tell along the way as well. And you'll find really interesting perspectives on things like you said, maybe it's a bug or a beetle, or or looking at some flowers or the way the sunlight hits something. Have you always had that 
mindfulness then, even you know, back in in your earlier days, or is this something that you've taken a little bit more pause to stop and really take yeah, that in? Yeah, and and again, I've I've enjoyed our runs together because, as I say, you've got a wisdom beyond your years. I don't find that many people that are that contemplative. Well, thank of, you. You know, why are we here? How did we get here? What what's the whole point of all this? Um, and that definitely the the level of gratitude, the appreciation for here and now mm-hmm. has gone up as I've gotten older. Some of that came from the ultra running. And I had one of these guys that was the first 50 miler I did almost, again, almost took me out because it was a really hot day and I got dehydrated. And this, this guy who had done several of them, I ran into him. He was actually on horseback. And, and at the time he said, you know, if you survive this, um, if you do these ultras, it's going to change the way you look at the world. And I thought, okay, you're an yeah. older guy, you're on a horse. I mean, you know, give me a break. <laughs> how, you know, how transformative is this really? And and he was right, because I think a little bit in the 50-miler, but much more in the 100-milers when I started going overnight. When when you're alone by yourself at 2 o'clock in the morning on the top of a mountain and you happen to get above tree line, this, mm-hmm. this was pretty profound for me, is we were doing one out of Crouch. And it was the first time I'd ever been on the top of the hill above tree line where I saw stars 360 degrees. I oh, mean, wow. at, the horizon line was b- below me mm-hmm. and have a clear night with stars everywhere. And this sudden realization that you're out here all alone. And and I read all the stuff in astronomy and stuff in terms of how big the universe is, but it, but it finally kind of dawned, dawned on, on you, me yeah. that this place is like mind-bogglingly enormous and I'm completely inconsequential. Really? So it was standing on top of the mountain on that race where it just, it was kind of a paradigm shift for you. Yeah. And, and part of it was... There was this, and I've talked about it as kind of almost being this duality, this this sense that you're completely irrelevant, your lifespan versus 13 billion years and mm-hmm. versus the span of space. It doesn't matter. Something goes wrong on a Tuesday, no one's going to remember, nobody's going to care. And in the in the grand scheme of things, put put your life in a perspective. And in some ways, as I say, it's, in, it's inconsequential. The flip side is the other thought that immediately occurred to me is, and what an amazing gift that mm. we're here. Yeah. And so you start thinking about, you know, other human beings and their frailties and and even my own, you know, okay, you don't do this quite as well as somebody else, or you're not as fast as somebody else, or you're not as smart as somebody else. And you go, what, what a gift to be here. And, you, and then you look at a beetle or you look at a bee and you start to look at it with a wonderment that my three-year-old had. And you watch a kid in the backyard watching a butterfly and you go, okay, come on, you're getting distracted by a butterfly. And then again, during these ultras, it was the kid's right. Yeah. We should be distracted. And there is a certain amazement and a gratefulness that comes. And again, I think as you get older, besides ultra, I think the other thing was having people die. Yeah. And you say, okay, there's this finality to life. And to me, you can say, well, that's kind of morbid. You think about death. I've recommended to people several times, you, you know, you want to figure out what you want to do for life and what your purpose is, write your own eulogy. Yeah, it's, and you've shared that with me, and it's something that I took to heart, and it has really kind of informed the way I look at life a little differently now, and I've even taken that and shared that with other people to ask them that same question. If you were to write your own eulogy, what would that look like? And uh, we kind of know that this is a, we have a finite time here, and what are we going to do with it? So... Is you're having this moment through this race, how does that inform now your day-to-day moving forward, seeing things a little bit differently? Well, it's like this morning. I mean, you and I are out, we're running this call to the airport, and it's an absolutely spectacular sunrise. Mm, yeah. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah. It will never happen again. 
I mean, I could show up a week from now, it would be a different sunrise. And so the the gratefulness, the thankfulness for those moments, the the people again across the expanse of space and time. If you said, "I'm sitting here having this conversation with Jake," <laughs> and I got to share the sunrise with Jake, and I get to share a cup of coffee with Jake, and and, and if you think about the incredible odds of whether or not that could have happened, yeah, you know, I can understand why people are religious. I mean, we use the term miracle, maybe too frequently and without enough reverence. And again, I'm not a deeply religious person, but but if you think about the way we're all connected, connected to things on earth and the and the harmony with mm-hmm. which it operates in terms of our tolerance for temperature or, you know, daylight hours and the way plants grow and things that eat plants and then we eat things that eat things. The fact that all of that works and you think about okay, it, to our knowledge, in the total expanse of the universe, there's nowhere else yeah. that we know of. Now it's a little, to me, self-centered to think that we're it. Right. And I don't know quite what else might be out there. And I can't tell you, well, if it wasn't God, you know, what created it, what was the Big Bang and what was there before the Big Bang or whatever. I, I That's part of the reason I run. I still don't have the answers. Um, but when I get to share time on the trails with people like you or Sid or others, it, it's just with this incredible gratefulness. Cause again, I've had friends struck down by cancer. I've lost my parents. My wife's lost most of her parents. Her stepmom's still alive. Um, but that's what makes it valuable and in some ways more precious is you've got a limited inventory and you never know when it's going to be up. Do you think that this is just something that you've, a perspective you've accumulated over time through your life experiences, or is there something where you could say maybe started to inform this direction that you went? Um, I think of a lot of it as reading widely. I think as, um, again, I think the, the time alone running has been a, a big part of it, just to, just in terms of time and nature. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was born and raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. So this thought of the hereafter, and then you look at religions around the world, and you go, okay, does anybody have the right answer? If, if whatever you have for religion helps you get through the day and be a better person, I'm all for it. If it's going to exclude others, put people down, make them feel bad about themselves, I don't have much use for it. And I, I do think there was this evolution of philosophy. And again, there's a, a Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh that writes stuff that I find just incredible mm-hmm. in terms of his thoughtfulness and the transitory nature of life and whether we even pass on. You know, we're made out of minerals, the air we breathe, everything is, has been here forever and, and, and will be. So there's this sense of continuity. And I don't know, I definitely buy into reincarnation, but if you think about the substance of what we are, we're carbon. <laughs> and so if you think about what you're made out of, it, it's been here a long time before you showed up. And it's, and particularly if you go through the earthworm burial, you're going to, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So yeah, I think p- part of it's all formative. And that's why, um, you know, one of the best quotes I ever read from somebody who said, you know, when everybody talks about being a self-made man, that, there is no such thing. We're a mosaic of every person we've ever interacted with. Any comment any person has ever made to you, for better or for worse, it, it's part of who you are. Mm. And so we're this vessel that carries all of that with us. And, and I think part part of it is as you get older, you start making decisions of who am I going to invite to be part of that and, and what am I going to exclude and what's meaningful to me or whatever. Um, if you said, how did you turn out the way you turned out and, and go replay it so a three-year-old or a four-year-old can be successful? I mean, there's some things I did that I think were part of the form of his experiences, but I grew up in a different time and era. So I think for each 
individual, it's it's what's meaningful to them and how can they put something into the world they feel good about. I've carried a phrase around on my wallet for a long time that says find purpose where there is none. Mm. Yeah, it's a great one. And, you know, again, that's part of when I think about the runs I've had with you, that that's part of what makes spending time with you so enjoyable is neither one of us, I feel like has the answer, but I was going to say, so how do you do that then? How do you find purpose where there is none? Does that come back to just stopping to, to take a moment just to appreciate the moment for what it is? Um, yeah, some of that. And then if you're going to try to put ripples into the world, can you do it in a way that it's a positive current and not trashing people? Mm-hmm. And again, I realize there needs to be, or there is conflict in the world and there's things where people don't agree. But you know, part of running, when I think about the running community and the ultra community, there's a lot of people in there that are just very welcoming, very accepting. Uh, I'm in awe of what some of them accomplish just in terms of the human spirit and the ability to continue. And to me, it's very uplifting. And very few people in that running community have I met that aren't accepting of others. I'm sure there are some, but but everybody comes at it with their own thing. And if mm-hmm. I look at how many people have, in some cases, traded addictions yeah. or traded mental health issues or drug abuse or alcohol abuse or childhood trauma or whatever, they're all informed. And my next door neighbor said at the best, she said the most interesting people are the ones that have scars. And I think as I've gone on, particularly in running, a lot of the people I've met, everybody has scars. Yeah, it's just a absolutely. question of whether they're they're open to sharing them or whether we have enough caring and consideration to take the time to listen and learn. Great point. And yeah. whether it's losing parents or grandparents or substance abuse, or I, my heart really goes out to the people that have lost children. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to bury a child, but the friends I have that have had that happen to them or my stepmom, I, you don't even know, in some ways you don't know where to begin. I mean, it's just, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. But but again, when I think about the running community, they're very accepting and they're very welcoming and, and everybody has a story. You know, why are you here? Why would you do this? I mean, how many people, seriously, when they ask you, how many people in their right mind would go run 100 miles in the mountains on a trail in the middle of nowhere? Not not, not a lot. Not a lot of people that are wired the right way or you run from the norm theme for your your podcast and stuff. What I found is there is no norm. It's a whole bunch of individuals. and, And what I hope is that you find a bunch of individuals that are willing to be a tribe and accept other individuals. You know, and you and I have talked about this. There was, a, there was a book where a guy described, if you make a banana split, the banana stays its own thing, the ice cream flavor stay their own thing, the whipped cream, the nuts or whatever. And it it has its individuality, but the combination is so powerful and just so rewarding. Whereas if you took all that crap and threw it in a blender and hit puree. Each of the flavors loses the uniqueness of each component. It becomes homogenous. Yeah, yeah. And and again, it's it's still delicious, but you can't have your cherry on top. Yeah. <laughs> and again, when I think about you and watching you bound down a hill and go, there's nobody like Jake. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, <laughs> gra- just grabbing me doing it to work. <laughs> yeah. You, you, my friend Kurt Wiles, you know, guys that are just physically imposing to watch somebody who's over 200 pounds use gravity, long legs, strength and hit a downhill. You just want to stop and stand on the side of the trail in awe and just go, Wow, that must be cool. <laughs> That's where I have to make up time. I'm not going to beat anybody on an uphill, but uh, yeah, I'll let gravity work on its way down. Brady, I'm sure you know Brady. Oh, yeah. Brady's the same way. He you, just dances. You, you watch Brady come down, and just like the guy, you, you swear his feet are never touching the ground. Yeah. I mean, he is so, so fast light. and so smooth, and yeah. you just go, wow. Um, it's, it's interesting because when you run, you know, we were out the other day, Sid and I were out the other morning, and he said, hey, that's Tim. And he spots this guy across the park, literally a couple hundred yards away. 
And I said, how do you know that's Tim? And he says, I know his gait. But, you know, height, weight, all the other stuff, dressed in winter garb, right? But to spot him from 300 yards away and go, that's Tim. It's interesting, the, the thing that runners pay attention to. You just, you know somebody's gait. You can see it from a distance. And yeah, you, you can't see any features on a face or anything like that, but you can pick them out. And the other part is the joy. Mm-hmm. The serendipity of running into Tim. Oh, yeah. And to hear the tone of Sid's voice. Hey, I know that guy. The excitement. Let's, let's go say hi. And just that sense of camaraderie, that sense of history or whatever, and just that joy of seeing another human being that, you, that you've related with, that you have a relationship with or whatever. That's, again, one of the cool things I'm running is you build these friendships and relationships that even if you don't see somebody for two years because they've moved somewhere or whatever and they come back, it's like old home week. Yeah, you and, pick right back up. And... Yeah, if I run into Brent or, or finding Joelle and her, her hounds up on the in the foothills with David. I yeah. mean, it's and she's just, always got a smile plastered on her face. Yeah. And yeah, it's just like this little extra gift that the day gives you when you run into them. And it's just like, this is just way cool. <laughs> so one of the things I love about you is, is how compassionate you are. So I'm curious, uh, what does that mean to you to have that connection and build that connection? Yeah, you asked earlier about childhood. I, I can't tell you how much of it comes out of Catholic guilt. I, I give my parents quite a bit of credit. You know, I grew up in a family of six kids, and and we were fine. I mean, we were, at the time, probably would have been termed middle class. Certainly weren't exceedingly well off, but they they took in foster kids. They did stuff through the church, et cetera. But particularly as I progressed through my professional career and started to run into, whether it was investment bankers on Wall Street or board members or officers of our company or other other companies, the income inequality became incredibly obvious. You know, you, I, I would take a trip to New York and you'd be on the Upper East Side near Central Park and somebody's got a $50 million condo overlooking Central Park. And then you go a half a block and there's some guy urinating between parked cars, you know, mm. ask him for a sandwich or sleeping on a steam grate over the subway. And I'm not sure I could have ever been the guy that had the $50 million condo, maybe. I'm pretty sure I could have been the guy sleeping on the grate. <laughs> that that part, I think, was entirely doable. You know, I was fortunate enough to be born into a family with a mom and dad, stable household. Dad had a job. Mom worked occasionally. They got me weekly reader. They put me in Boy Scouts. I got to do, you know, occasionally play on Little League kind of sports, camping, all of the things that you kind of associate with a middle class life and all of the institutions at the time that provided stability. And I think one of probably one of the most difficult things I've dealt with professionally and personally is there are a lot of people that end up on the right side of that divide. And again, there, I don't want to discount the hard work. There's a ton of hard work involved. But realizing all of the systemic things that are in place as scaffolding to help you succeed and help you build your life. A number of people aren't in that situation or or never were in that situation or their parents weren't in that situation. So you say, you know, because Wendy and I do a lot philanthropically and we volunteer a lot. And I honestly tell people, I said, if you're OK with a three year old sleeping in a car, I didn't even know where to begin. Yeah. And you can say, well, their parents made bad choices or it's a single mom and she should have done X and, and should have done Y and whatever. I, I, I don't I don't care. The fact is, there's a three year old that doesn't have food security, doesn't have clothing, doesn't have shelter. And I'm not okay with that. So what are the actions that you take in that instance? Because um, I know you are very involved in a lot of philanthropic work. And that's part of what motivated me professionally was I figured out I could write checks, which I've had a friend that said, would you stop writing checks and would you start working on the systems and try to change the systems, which is a much bigger task and a much bigger ask. But, mm-hmm. 
you know, we do a lot around early childhood education. We try to do a lot to create economic opportunity and educational opportunities. And I've been talking to real estate developers as that, hey, as you're thinking about affordable housing, think about where you do it from a place base. Does it have transportation? Does it have access to food? What are the issues with daycare? We help talk the Y into starting up a pre-K program at Taft Elementary on State Street. That's awesome. And you look at it and you go, okay, if that helps offset daycare cost, it does great things for the kid, but it also does potentially terrific things economically for the family unit if it helps mom or dad have access to time for education and training or eliminates outlays for daycare, et cetera. I mean, there's this, all of these positives that potentially could come from it. Um, I work with a group called the Economic Opportunity that does a lot with trying to spur the starting of in-home daycares. And there's a lot of overlap with new American refugee populations. And again, it's kind of the, the start of an initial small business but it also creates capacity in the community for other people to get job training and work and build life skills for the person who's running the daycare. Yeah. I've been incredibly, incredibly fortunate. And I've had a lot of people that went out of the way to mentor and help me. So there is there is a certain pay it forward, but, but I would tell you there's also an enormous frustration where people say, well, my taxes are too high right. and whatever. It's like, if somebody needs to tax it to, to get it from you, to reach out and help others. I'm not a big fan of tax and redistribute. I, I am a big fan of if you can help somebody and you can share, please do it of your own free volition and do it on things that matter to you and, and give you a purpose. It, it's better if somebody doesn't have to compel you to do it. Yeah. I, I'd rather you felt some connection to humanity and would choose to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. One of the things I'd like to ask is you seem to be shifting a little bit more of a focus towards the youth, towards the younger kids. Um, is that becoming more of a focus to help redirect their opportunities? Um, I think there was a book we were discussing and you were mentioning how they were able to kind of pinpoint some markers in early development that really contributed to, I say success, but success being a, a relative term. My wife, Wendy, did early childhood education. So, oh, she, okay. so she could give you all the professional stuff. Okay. But, but a lot of the stuff I've read and a lot of the stuff I've been exposed to says a lot of your success in life and your personality is formed in, in kind of zero to five, zero to six. So if you th think about a young child, in a, for example, in an abusive household or doesn't have food security or doesn't have good mentors, the, the, the book you're referring to talks about if you have an experienced kindergarten teacher, how much difference that makes in your lifetime income. Again, at the kindergarten level, they, they, they were able to map and correlate if your kindergarten teacher was experienced and did a good job. Here's what it, that impact it has on your lifetime earnings. And so when I look at it, and, and again, a lot of the stuff I do through United Way, um, YMCA and others, I'm a, I'm a big believer that if we get the first eight years of life right, a lot of good things happen. If you get the, the first eight years of life wrong, it's not that it can't be corrected, but it, it's, a lot it's, harder. it's an uphill. And, and I think for the most part, parents want their children to succeed. So again, if you said, you know, why do people want to immigrate to the, the U.S.? Maybe that's changing, but they want their kids to have a better life. And they're willing to sacrifice a fair amount of turmoil in their life to create a better life for their kids. And so for me, a lot, a lot of the stuff I do um, is how do we create intergenerational opportunity? And I would much rather ask people to be responsible and engage. And it doesn't mean we're going to get equal outcomes. I recognize that. But if we can knock down barriers and try to create opportunities and let people do things that they're passionate about and helps them take their individual 
individuality into the world in a way that's positive, that's good. Whether they want to be an artist, whether they want to be an engineer, whether they want to work for the Humane Society, I mean, what, what do you want to do to engage with other human beings or the world or nature that's going to leave a positive impact on the place? And, and, and how do I help enable that? Because I had an enormous number of people that have made that possible for me. So a couple of things that you mentioned there is, is how do you enable that? And you also mentioned creative output because you, you're an artist. I've seen some of the art that you've created. Does that help in that expression at all? Um, yeah, the two, the two are somewhat related. If you think about kids that are three, four, and five, they draw artwork and until somebody tells them it's crappy or until they think it's crappy, mm-hmm. they're willing to be expressive and put their individuality out mm-hmm. there. And point. then and then the other thing I find interesting, and again, it's one of the reasons I really enjoy spending time with you, is I think there's a level of empathy that comes from art. How are you seeing the world? How are you interpreting the world? What what is it that caught your attention or what or what were you thinking? Why did about? you see it this certain yeah, way? Yeah, what were yeah. what were your insights? You know, things like Jackson Pollock. How can you look at a Pollock and not say, I wonder what was going through his head? What was the mind space? And again, if you just look at it for like two minutes or three minutes, you get one impression. If, if you literally purposefully sit there and spend like 20 minutes and pick like a f- three by five little inch space and pay attention to it and then branch out or Tony Dorr reading mm. stuff that Tony Dorr's written, you know, writers, Hemingway, whatever. You, I mean, you read these people and you say, okay, how do they interpret the world? I just read this really cool book by Ruth. I think it's Ruth Ozeki. And it talks about everybody's life as a book and, and you're writing a chapter by chapter and you hear all these voices and your, your job is just to scribe and write down. And so, you know, when I listen to your music, when I look at what you do, like designing your run from the norm logo or whatever. Okay. So how does Jake see the world? He's got tattoos on his arms and legs. Okay. What, what, what was he thinking? What was impacting his life? What were his emotions? How, how did he feel about the world? How was he interacting with the world? Allow me for a moment to see the world through Jake's eyes or Sid's eyes or Joel's eyes. And that's why I say the running community can be really cool. Um, the art community, whether it's Monet, Van Gogh, Isaacson's book on Leonardo da Vinci, one of the greatest books I've ever read. I mean, just reading things da Vinci was thinking about in terms of science and art. And you just go, okay, that's like the coolest thing ever. And so that's when you said, okay, early childhood education. That's what I want for that four-year-old and that five-year-old. I want the world to be this blank palette yeah. or blank sheet of music or, or digital or whatever. But, but I want them to be able to say, I'm an individual. I'm the, I'm the only one that's ever going to be. But let me ask you about that. How do you inspire people to do that now in your day to day? I don't have a large following on social media. But I hope I cause people to stop I kind of playfully. It, what's wrong with this guy? He, no <laughs> kidding. He could be traveling in Italy and he's out taking pictures of bugs or he's jumping in the Boise River or he's doing whatever. But there's these little joys. I think in a lot of times there's this fear of missing out. You know, we don't mm-hmm. have the biggest house. We don't have the biggest car. We don't have the whatever. And there's this fear of the, you know, we don't have as much as everybody else. So people are going to think less of us. And the thing I, I try to instill and, and, and including in myself, not just other people, it's okay being you and and not everybody's motivated by the same things and and you're not necessarily missing out if you're if if you're missing out on anything are you missing out on relationships are you missing out on just the natural world and the fact that we're even here and we exist and if you spend so much time running around and you don't 
comparing yourself to everybody else. Or just trying to reach some future objective. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to get a house that's got 500 more square feet, or I want to get a third car, or I want to have a second home, or I want to whatever. You, I mean, you're constantly chasing in some ways and putting activities into your day that may or may not in the end, create as much happiness as going out and watching the sunrise. That's a great point. As I say, this guy, Thich Nhat Hanh, I've, I've been reading more and more of his stuff. We're always trying to create a future. And I think we end up giving up a lot of the here and now, which really can be incredibly inspiring in its own right if you just s- slow down and don't make the world more complicated than it is or more complicated than it needs to be and find those people and those relationships that bring you joy. Mm-hmm. And the same for a kid, what what I'd like to do is make sure all young people are covered off kind of on Maslow's hierarchy, that they're not worried about food security, they're not worried about clothes, they're not worried about where they're going to sleep tonight or whatever. If we could get to the basic needs levels. Allow them to be kids. And and again, if you looked at the stress in the household and you said, okay, why is there domestic violence and why is there abuse and whatever, a lot of it is cases of where they've previously been abused by earlier generations or it's economic pressures. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk to people that have accumulated wealth, said the most priceless commodity you have is discretionary time. And you say, well, these people ought to make better decisions or they ought to do this or they ought to do this. And and in a lot of cases they're working two or three jobs, but in a lot of cases they don't have discretionary time or they don't have the Mm -hmm. mental bandwidth because they're stressing out over how am I going to make rent? Or, you know, I was telling you my wife's car battery died. For me, that's not an economic end of the world. I I can get the car towed. I can take it to a garage and and I'll figure it out. For a lot of people, if you okay, I just missed work, yeah. <laughs> or I got to get an Uber, or I got to call a friend, or whatever. I mean, the world goes tilt. Yeah, how do I come up with a, an extra two hundred dollars in my budget to buy a battery? And if I don't know how to do that myself, how do I get that put in now as well? And if yeah. it's the, some electronic issue, and it ends up being eight hundred bucks to fix right. the eight hundred dollar electronic issue in her car. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, the accumulated savings that that doesn't get covered off. And so to bring this full circle back to the run from the norm and the, and the running thing, I. I th- think when you're out running by yourself, you, you get time alone in nature. But for me, it's also a lot of time to think about how is the world put together and, and where is my place in it? So if you said, okay, where does this gratitude and this thankfulness come from? And you and I talked about this when we were running into late Lucky Peak Radio Towers. On any given day, you can be swamped by negativity, whether it's the war in Ukraine or Gaza or what's going on in Africa with tribal warfare, stuff that's going on in the US and the political front. You can find 100% that would be nothing but downers. Mm-hmm. Flip side is for a lot of people, they can be in a cocoon and don't know that there's anything wrong with the world because you know I'm hanging out on my on my right. yacht and as long as the champagne's cold and the caviar is okay. Life is good. Life is good. It works fine for me. It's too bad that it sucks for the rest of you, but you know I'm, I'm doing fine. And, and for me, running gives me time to think about those disparities and where might I take action? What, what could I do about it? And, and I'm willing to live with it. Is it okay? Where am I going to make noise? How, how would I make noise? Do I just write checks? Do I volunteer? Do I go to try to influence politics? Do I just spend 20 minutes being thankful? Or do you just take a few minutes and stop and enjoy the view, take a picture and share the thought that you might be having at that point, even in a social media post for those people that see that and it gives them pause. Or, you know, I don't do this. I don't stop to look at the at the butterflies <laughs> or I don't stop to smell the flowers or or to look at the patterns of the raindrops on the sidewalk. There's always just an intense thoughtfulness behind it. And I love that about you, but I want to shift it a little bit. There's also a component I'd like to dive into, which is your ability to embrace struggle. We're talking about these long runs and these times where we're kind of deep in ourselves and we're thinking about all these things. But I've also shared a lot of miles with you at races as well, too, to where I have never seen somebody who can appear to be 
in a pit of hell, <laughs> and, <laughs> but, but is still able to persevere and accomplish the goal. How do you keep your mind focused enough to push through that? And what's your relationship to pain and struggle in those instances? What keeps you going? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And even though they're the worst, some of those times in hindsight end up being the best. Mm. And a lot of it, if if you said, okay, so what's the what's the voiceover? You know, when you're when you're when you're in those times or those moments, or you know, in some races, it's been like ongoing. I, I think I think I've mentioned to you in the past that you know my record at I am tough is vomiting seven times, <laughs> which is not something to be proud of. But in some ways, I'm proud of it because I I didn't quit, and you know, particularly the Crestline Trail is usually exposed on Saturday mm-hmm. afternoon, and it can, and it can get hot, brutal, yeah. And I literally, there's a voiceover that says, okay, even if you have to walk this part, you're, you're still going to make cutoff, manage your hydration, manage your food. And, and usually it's around, if, if mine serves me correctly, sometime around 7.30 or so, it, it's dark. So you know it's going to cool off. You know you're not going to be under the hot sun anymore. You know you're going to be getting to an aid station and you just kind of put yourself together. Um, Why not quit? In those instances where it seems like everything is against you, you're throwing up, your body feels like it's falling apart, why not quit? Um, there's this great phrase in the book, Born to Run, where it's it re- refers to me, and, I, and my memory's not that great, so take this for with a grain of salt, but, but there's this thing about being chased down by the bear, the, the psychological bear. And, and once you quit, it becomes easier to quit the next time. Mm. And and I, I know some people from the ultra community that their dropout rate is like 40 or 50% on mm. races they start. And I'm like, how, you know, I, I, I would have a hard time doing that. Yeah, that's a good point. There are times when it probably would, would have been better advised. And when I did Vermont, they checked racers and they did health checks or whatever. And at one point I had lost seven pounds between aid stations. And I'm sure it's because oh I was absorbing no fluids and... and mm-hmm had this really spectacular vomiting sequence <laughs> between the aid stations. And I don't I thought, know anybody you know, that, that would describe a vomiting uh, it was spe- It was spectacular. I mean, it would have been, I if, I could, if I could have videoed it, it was like the best projectile of like gallons of fluid. And I, and all the thought is, wow, for whatever you've done for the last several hours, none of it has been absorbed because it's clearly all coming back up. And I mean, it was like, wow, that's really, really impressive. But then... And, and again, this is weird, but then you start thinking about, okay, so is it POWs? Is it the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. Is it whatever? And there is a certain part of it for me that is get over yourself and, and what do you need to do? The human spirit is clearly capable of this. You've seen other human beings, you've read their stories, you've seen the movies, or you've met them personally and interacted with them in terms of what they've gone through. And you can get through this. And then- in some ways, just for me, I set micro goals. I'll pick a tree and say, "Okay, just walk this 200 yards, and when you get to the tree, just plan on starting running again." But from here to the tree, you know, I'm going to give yourself an allowance. And then sometimes I'll do the flip. Okay, if you if you run from where you are now to that tree, this could be a 14 or 15 minute pace, right? Just keep moving. <laughs> just keep moving. And one of the guys early in my ultra career, he said, "The the race is never won sitting in the chair." This was his advice: was never sit down at aid stations. He said, mm. "Stay on your feet." And yeah. he said, "RFP." And I said, "What?" And he says, "RFP." And I said, "What? What's RFP? Relentless Forest Progress." But there is when you hit those mental, and again, they're usually combined with physical and sometimes like really, really intense physical. But the mental thing is is the, is the harder part, convincing yourself 
that you do want to keep going and 100%. and what will be the psychic reward if and when you get to the end. But I don't want to say quitting is not an option because there is at some point where you got to say, hey, you know, this could kill you that you probably need to make a different decision. Is there a fear of of a judgment there of what people might think if you don't, oh, yeah, don't complete the thing? Yeah, there's a fear of judgment of others for sure. But there's way more fear of judgment for me. Okay. You know, could I live with it? Yeah. Occasionally there will be profanity laced tirades at myself <laughs> <laughs> that helps. I've witnessed. Yeah, that's, that, that, that motivates me. And, you know, when you and I were out on that run in the foothills and we ended up getting just massively dehydrated because oh, we were away from streams or whatever. And it was just like painful. The leg cramps set it yeah. and we were like literally getting a little bit nervous. Heat stroked and, yeah. and whatever. And you thought, okay, this just sucks. Um, but the hard part is if you can get to the intrinsic where the person you care about letting down is you, mm-hmm. not other people. That's why I say the individuality and doing what's important to you and, and where do you find purpose. Most of the times when I'm pushing through, I'm not doing it for fear of what other people will think. It's more out of fear of, okay, so so what does that say about me? Hmm. Interesting. H- how am I going to feel about that? And you know, now that I'm 61, it's like, okay, if you could, if you can still go in the Boise River when it's 20 degrees and you can jump off a bridge, okay, you're not really that old or, or you're not really that smart or you don't have common sense or whatever. And, and so giving in to that, this is what we, this is what the world expects of a 61 year old. This, this is how you should behave. This is the, your level of caution, your level of common sense. These are the things physically you can do. And, and I'm, I'm breaking more things. So I'm getting a little more respect for the, when things go wrong, but that's, that's always been my issue with the 100 milers is if, if I quit when I could persevere, and I mentioned this marathon in Seattle, I literally, when I went through one of the checkpoints at like 22 or 23 miles, and again, it was a hot day, I was bobbing and weaving, and I, I knew I was getting dehydrated, and I, and I knew I still had a shot at being sub three. And I, as I was coming to an aid point, I could hear the aid guys talking to each other about, we've got one that looks like this seared, severe dehydration where we're <laughs> going to have to pull them off. And I thought, oh. <laughs> F word. No. F word. You gotta be kidding me. And it, it turned out it was the person next to me. But I thought, okay, that's kind of how I look. And I, you know, sped up, tried to be really thoughtful about, you know, here's here's how I'm gonna look or whatever. And I, and literally when I got to the finish line, I was like 300 yards away. And I could see the clock at 258.30 mm. moving to 259. And I thought, okay, you got a couple hundred yards slightly downhill to the this finish line. It. And if you can make it, you can get a sub three, mar- sub three marathon. And I made it with like 14 seconds to spare. And and I, and I was a wreck at the end, but it was like- You made it. And that was for no one else. That that was for me. This The sub three was a threshold I wanted to hit. And and again, my my 10th, I am tough, getting, you know, getting through 10, 10 I am toughs. Huge. Um, Tony Huff's got 12, and I'd love to catch Tony. But but there are these these personal goals and the expectations, and, and I don't ever want to, in some ways, let myself down. Do you feel like that drive is getting more intense the older that you get? Um, it's It's different. You know, I don't know that it's intense in kind of the same way it was. I think there's... Um, a creeping in of realizing that I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Mm-hmm. So each time I go out becomes a little more precious because I know there's there's less and less in inventory. So where does the the cold plunges play into this? Because you do that on a regular basis when it's freezing cold outside. So that actually started several years ago. I was having beers with a guy at Payette Brewing, and he said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy named Wim Hof? W-I-M space 
HOF. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't. And he said, you know, in terms of your psychological challenges, you know, with running and all the other, he says, you ought to check this guy out. They, they do cold showers, they do cold plunges or whatever, and it's good for your immune system. It's good psychologically or whatever, but you would like this guy's philosophy in terms of getting control of your mind, getting control of your body. There's this whole spiritual aspect that's somewhat similar to the Eastern religions and whatever. And he said, you, you might just find this guy interesting. And I'm sure for him, it was just a passing comment. So of course I get home and I've got, so who's this Wim Hof guy? So I get online and I start looking at it. I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. So first couple of times I tried to take a cold shower. I mean, I was gasping for it. I thought, why in the hell would anybody do this? And then it, it got to this, just the shower part was, okay, can I control my breathing? Can I get my heart rate under control? Can I, and it became the next kind of like the running challenge mm-hmm. of the, okay. Can, That's what I'm thinking right you, now is, is we get to know each other more and more and I'm getting a, more of an inner look of, of your mind and how it works. I can just, you see a challenge and it's like, okay, I'm going in on this. Yeah. And, and again, back to this thing from being a crouch on the top of the mountain saying, okay, Tuesday's not that important. Yeah. The Wim Hof thing is for that minute and a half to two minutes, no matter how uncomfortable it is, can you get your mind to relax? Can you get your breathing to relax? Can you just appreciate where you are and can you get through this? And how much and, of this also is a component of you kind of like having some crazy Wayne where people are looking oh, at you like, what oh. the hell are you doing? Oh yeah, I'm sure there's a narcissistic <laughs> element that's going, okay, this guy's just out of control. So there, there's definitely that that aspect of the, hey, look at me, look at me. I mean, that's probably from being the third of six kids and you know trying to get attention. But again, I'm sure there's the social media aspect of the, hey, look at this, but it's more on my it's own deeper. of the never stop learning. Yeah. You know, I'd love to be able to paint like Monet or Van Gogh and and learn that. And you said, okay, the hour you're spending running, is there going to come a time when your joints will just say, you're not doing that anymore? Mm-hmm. And assuming I haven't lost my eyesight, is it going to be, okay, now it's time to paint and figure out how to do depth or complementary colors or whatever? What will, what will be the next learning thing? So for me, the Wim Hof thing in a way was, can you do cold tolerance? Can you, can you teach your mind something new that you didn't know for the first 55 years of your life, you know, now can you learn to do this? Something new, some new challenge or whatever. I've never done the race across the Sahara. I'm not sure I would do as well as <laughs> with heat as I do with cold, but it's this new opportunity to learn. And and again, when I see the Wim Hof crowd or those the crowd of video, there's a great um, short documentary that the New Yorker did on these three gals that met during COVID that ended up doing winter swimming in Lake Michigan. And when the documentary came on, I saw this this bend on the corner of the lake and all these ice shards on Lake Michigan. And I told Wendy when it came up and it flashed on like the YouTube previews, I said, I know exactly where that is. It's this shore on Lake Michigan. I've run by there several times. I know I know where those ice shards are. And then we watched these documentary on these three women and one of them had lost her husband during COVID, but they built this bond and this friendship. It reminded me of the seven o'clock Y running group. Mm. And they were swimming all summer and it was kind of the way they were getting through COVID with one another. And then as it got colder and colder, they didn't want to give up that camaraderie and they didn't want to give up the swimming. But obviously in Chicago in the winter, it gets cold, freaking cold. So there's a scene towards the end of the thing where there's somebody out there with a sledgehammer busting a hole in the ice. So these three older gals and they've got neoprene gloves and neoprene booties. So and other than that, just their swimming suits. And they're sitting in this thing that this guy has like chunked out that's maybe six by eight or six by 10 feet. And it's got all the slushy ice and they're sitting in up to their necks having this conversation. And it's like, okay, that just freaking. Rocks. And so you go, could I have the mental fortitude to do that? 
So on my 61st birthday, I was with my stepmom in Maine and we ended up in China Lake and ended up breaking through a couple inches of ice and, you know, ended up with a few small cuts or whatever. But, <laughs> but to be able to sit surrounded by ice and go, yeah, I can do that. Probably pretty I've, surreal. I've, I've seen these three old gals do it and what the hell, you know, if, if this other person can do it. I want to, I want to test myself. Can, can you have the mental fortitude and can you test yourself and can you figure out how to do that? There's an artistry to that. You just want the world to be an open opportunity because because yeah. you, you don't know where the next da vinci is going to come from you don't know where the next steve Jobs is going to come from or mother Teresa or whatever and so you know there's an incredible raw material and, and you just don't want the world to waste it would it be fair to say that you're driven by a desire to remove limitations and yeah create create opportunities for mm-hmm. people hopefully they're positive opportunities i mean the people that want to go spread pain and fear and suffering into the world. I really don't have a lot of time and space for, but you know, I've had the pleasure of working with Tim Lowe, who's the principal at Taft Elementary. He and Jenny Hurst are two of the most amazing people I've met in my life and just had the good fortune to hook up with them through Idaho Business for Education a couple of years ago. Tim's incredible and it's totally inspiring what he's doing with those kids and at school. And again, if you said, how do you want to use your time? You'd like to find people like him or Andrew at the Y and others and say, okay, how, how do I give them capacity to continue doing good into the world? And how do, how do I have some small piece into that? And, and for me, running helps restore capacity. It helps restore the emotional capacity, the mental capacity when crap's going wrong in the world. If I go out and find grasshoppers sitting on, you know, chartreuse grasshoppers sitting on a magenta flower, you go, okay, the the world is not quite as screwed up as as all that if I just take a minute to pause or... If we all would take a minute to pause. Yeah. And again, those those two minutes sitting in the Boise River in January, I'm pretty sure... Pretty well assure you that it will clear your head. I'd encourage you, you got to try it. But I mean, I've done the polar bear challenge one time um, up at Lucky Peak, and I remember hitting the water and just everything disappears. And it's almost like a panic hits you initially, then everything goes blank, and then it's a euphoria almost. Yeah. And then it's how the hell do I get out of this really, really fast because it's cold. <laughs> yeah. And again, when I think about the running and our friendship, and you know, part of the reason I'm just <laughs> so humbled by the fact that you asked me to have this conversation with you. When I think about the way you think about the world and what you're trying to do in terms of the, how do you allow people to be comfortable being themselves? Mm-hmm. How do you allow them to be creative, but still feel the sense of tribe and relationship and that there's other people out there. And if there's, even if it's multiple aspects, but if there's some aspect of you that doesn't quite fit the expectation for someone your age, for someone your gender, for all these are unique creations. And and how do you find a place in the world where you feel comfortable and accepted and then share yourself? Well, I, I appreciate that. It's, it, it's hard. It's really hard to put yourself out there in a very transparent and authenticity gets thrown out a lot. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of turning into a buzzword, but especially as we get older and we have all these different distractions and these different things that, that we're doing, it's it's almost like people are trying to compartmentalize themselves more instead of opening themselves up more to you know, the the curiosity and the interactions and the communications and and learning more about other people because we get so consumed with ourselves. It's been an interesting 
journey trying to do this and just share myself in a way to where it goes back to the fear of judgment. You know, what are people going to think and how, you know, how are people going to perceive what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do? And also being okay with, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm trying <laughs> to figure it out. And, and if you wait for everything to be perfect and for the stars to align and you wait for someday, someday may never come. So as we're sitting here have this conversa- having this conversation, I, I, I'm full of gratitude for the fact that you were willing to share your time and, and do this, knowing that I'm stumbling through with trying to come up with interesting questions and all these things. And But it's, it's really, my goal is I want to learn more about you and I want to give you an opportunity to share more about what you think about and why you think about the things that you do. And because it's so goddamn interesting, Wayne, it really is. Like the, the more that, that I get to know you and, and interact with you, I would love to be a fly on the wall inside your head for a while <laughs> just because it, it's fascinating. It truly, it's like, it's a beautiful mind. It really is a beautiful mind. Well, I, I appreciate that. Let me just say thank you for that. But, but here, here's the other one that, that, you know, when I think about our friendship, okay, you're you're 46, I'm 61. And you go, okay, how, how does that work? He's tattooed, he, he played in a hard rock band. How does that work? And you're one of my best friends. It, 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 it probably on paper doesn't. But if you look at like evolution, and again, I, I don't know that I got this right, but I've, I've read some things and I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. So if you think about evolution and how civilization came together, I mean, it was like, hey, how about if we get together on Saturday and we'll take down a mastodon and we'll eat well for a week, Yeah. right? So if you think the, the way humanity kind of got to that point is, you know, how do we pool resources? How do we pool efforts? And then because resources at times were scarce, wars broke out or survival. And, you know, how do I pass my genes and who do I need to kill or whatever? So over time that develops into stereotypes, you know, what What do I know? Because human minds are lazy and your brain burns more calories than almost any other part of your body. So your brain gets lazy and it, it builds stereotypes and it makes judgments and goes, okay, fight or flight. You know, I'm going to make a judgment before I need to make a judgment because if I make the wrong judgment, I might be dead. So mm. if you just think about evolution, you got to the point where you say, okay, if that guy's 6'4 and he's black, he's dangerous. I'm crossing the street. And it might be that he's fine. But if everything you've been told as a kid is... Be careful of the black guys. They're dangerous. You know, you talk about being indoctrinated and imprinted. I mean, if somebody raises you that way and tells you they're lesser or they're not whatever, as a kid, for a long time, you're going to believe that. And, you know, whether that's gays or Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland or whatever, I mean, we were great at creating wars between, you know, Muslims and Jews and whatever, based on stuff we're told as kids and indoctrinated into. So you create these stereotypes. And then you go, okay, where does prejudice come from? It's short for prejudge. Mm. And again, if you said, well, the reason I'm making that prejudgment is because of this survival fight or flight instinct. And you say, well, okay, I'm staying away from Jake because he's got 30 or 40 pounds on me and he's a couple inches taller than me. He's got lots of tattoos. And I know lots of people in prison have tattoos. So I'm not going to have a conversation with Jake or I'm not going to get to know Jake. And then you go, well, hold it. Jake might have two tattoos and he might play in a rock band. He might be one of the most introspective, thoughtful individuals you'll ever meet in your life. And if I let those prejudice around, he's in a rock band and he has tattoos and therefore he must not be thoughtful. He must just be a, a druggie and he stays up late and he probably sleeps till 10 o'clock in the morning, not knowing that you get up at four or 4.30. I mean, you make these judgments based on categories. And that yeah. to me is the coolest thing about what you're trying to do here is if we take the time to get to know people as individuals, we will be astounded yeah. at the variety. It's amazing. 
and we would be astounded by the familiarity. And you go, oh, you worry about that shit? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you worried about that. I worry about that. Exactly. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with this? Or how do you think about this or whatever? Oh, you don't have an answer? I don't have an answer. Yeah. And, and that goes across all kinds of groups. Yeah. And if we said, all have different stories, but everybody knows what fear feels like. Everybody knows what sadness or happiness feels like. And we have way more in common if we just take this time to connect and share. And it's amazing when you find out the people that are close to you find out their stories as we were running on Saturday with, you know, some, some of the Y group yeah. and more of the stories start coming out. People have led amazing lives. Oh yeah. I, I look at the Y Strider group and Wendy gives me a bad time because she'll say, well, who did you run with? And I'll say, John, what's John's last name? And for some of the group, I know, okay, it's Fishburne. What's his wife's name? Okay, hang on. Are we going to have a test? And, <laughs> and and particularly when I first started running with the group, she would say, okay, you know, nothing about their wives, you know, nothing about their children. Where do they work? Yeah. Some of that stuff doesn't matter if you mm-hmm. say, okay, where does the person work? I, I, I really don't care. He's just a nice guy. And yeah. if you said, well, he's, you know, this position at this organization, okay, well, I'm not in the same league. So therefore I'm not going to be comfortable, whatever. I mean, there's, there's a certain thing when you're down to your shoes and your running shorts, kind of pretty much everybody. It's down to the, I don't want to say the base person, but exactly to your point is that's not part of the conversation. It's you're really trying to get to know that person. Well, and it, and it's much more human. I mean, one of my yeah, one of my 100%. favorite I am tail finishes was I was running with this guy named, named Matt, and I won't give his last name just for privacy. But Matt and I were running together. We we missed ribbons early in the thing because we're chatting with a couple other guys, and Forest Service happened to be using the same color ribbons as mm. the race guys. We went five miles, uh, two and a half miles out, and two and a half miles back till we got back on trail. So we turned the 100 mile into 105 mile. Get as soon as like miles 65 or 70, things weren't going well uh, for him because we had tried to pick up the pace so that we could get back to the front of the pack and try to make up the five miles. And I kept telling him, it ain't going to happen that fast, dude. We got like 90 miles left. But my focus became, how do I get Matt to the finish line? Because he hadn't finished 100 before. Mm. So I hung with him towards the end. And I think we ended up walking close to the last 25 or 26 miles, but he finished. It was like one of the coolest finishes ever. And we came across it. And if you and if you had looked at the two of us in that finisher photo, go, how did that guy end up finishing with that guy? But it was like one of the best moments was coming across and seeing his fiance and seeing my wife and whatever and, and us finishing together. It was like it's still one of the best races ever, best finishes ever. It That's was awesome. just freaking cool. And it's those moments that that you remember. Those are the ones that really stick oh, with yeah. you. It yeah. was that was just it was just that, that just rocked. Yeah. I had a similar experience at uh, the last was it last year? The most recent I'm Tough is it was the same thing as I was running, you know, on my own and ended up kind of tying in with a guy and we ran probably 60 plus miles together. If, you know, he needed to slow down or stop, I'd slow down or stop, vice versa. And time went out the window. And it was just, it was a matter of, you know, we got there when we got there. And it was the most amazing feeling to to be crossing that line yeah. with this other person and that shared experience, knowing that, you know, you battled together and, and accomplished the goal and and uh, supported each other in the process. Yeah, it, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think for me, that's that's part of the running is, you know, when you're out on the trail, you don't think about what car you drive. Yeah. You don't think about what house uh, you live in. And a lot of times you don't think about what religion you were raised in. Um, it strips a lot of that stuff away. It's the great equalizer. And it's just, you know, and again, I think about this morning, seeing that sunrise, I mean, that was just... Amazing. An incredible blessing to have those oranges and that color and to see ash bounding along yeah. the ditch bank and whatever you to go, okay, that is one of the things to just be completely grateful in life for 
this moment, this space and time. And, and again, when you're out on trails w- with other people, or even when you're out by yourself, just that realization that this moment will, will never happen again. Yeah. And, you know, and there is this missing out aspect. So you go, well, I could be doing this along the Italian coast, or I could be doing this in Australia, or it could be, you know, why aren't I living in La Jolla? Why am I in Boise, Idaho or whatever? But if you can balance the, there's so much that's right mm-hmm. with that moment and and not get overwhelmed with the coulda, shoulda, woulda, or this could have been different or whatever. It's just, you know, how good is good? Most days it's pretty darn good. Yeah. yeah. You just pretty, have to remind yourself to embrace that. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same goes for people. They got to where they are through a journey that you will never take. Yeah. And if you're willing to spend the time to at least rewind and replay part of their journey, there's a real opportunity for connectedness. There's a real opportunity for learning and there's a real opportunity for appreciation. And and in a lot of cases, there's a real opportunity for acceptance yeah. of the, okay, I didn't know you'd, you'd been through that. You know, I got one of the guys I run with that lost his dad at a very, very early age. And you go, okay, so what difference would that have made if you didn't go salmon fishing with your dad every Saturday? Huge. These are the lives we, that we've, we've lived and it's it's nice like you say to be able to take a minute and appreciate it yeah and again i just feel so fortunate that we literally crossed paths years ago yeah and that you accepted this weird old dude well vice <laughs> and, versa and you accepted this you know crazy tattoo dude that just kind of yeah. showed up and we're willing to interact and and we've established the relationship that we have and you know as we were talking about the run this morning is one of the things that brought me so much joy was being out there and sharing it with you and seeing how you know excited you were for the same thing you know we both were just so in awe of seeing the sun come up and the colors and how it reflected on the clouds and I was almost more excited. I've got, you know, most of my pictures are taking pictures of you, taking pictures of, of, <laughs> you know, of, of the scene, just because it's that shared experience. That to me is where the gold is. Yeah. And I have been very, very fortunate with the people I've come across in my life. I realize there are billions of people I haven't come across, but running has introduced me to a group of individuals that as a general rule are pretty contemplative and pretty accepting of other people, particularly the ones that haven't got the world figured out but are willing to share the dialogue of, you know, here's here's what I'm thinking about, here's what I'm seeing, or have you seen Banksy, or I just saw a guy named Space Invader that does these mosaic installations, and now I gotta go, having read that in the New York, and now I gotta go look up Space Invader and figure out, okay, so where is this guy's mosaics? He apparently has done installations all over the world, but that continual curiosity, curiosity about the world yes. and, and other people and whatever, I just, when you run into the individuals that have that ongoing curiosity, that ongoing desire to learn and aren't like purely focused on material things, but, but the here and now and the why and the whatever, it, it's just like way more fun. It gets you excited for every day. It's just, it's just way more fun. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, Wayne. Um, I want to um, wrap this up with a couple of quick questions. And one of them is, do you have a personal mantra that you kind of embody or embrace that you like to live by? Um, if, if I can leave the world a better place and, and I guess if there's a mantra I want to live by, I would like a a few people to reflect and say, okay, this was a positive influence on my life. And that's probably in, in work. That was the biggest joy in my, in my life was watching people progress in their careers and watch their families do well, but watch them do well personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. That was like the coolest thing. It was like the old doctor in Doc Hollywood when he opens the cabinet, he's got all the babies he delivered. I mean, that 
if you said what what's the mantra you know it's probably google's don't do evil <laughs> yeah go, go try to put happiness into the world or at, at least compassion yeah i love that which will kind of segue into the last question which is the question that uh, that we talk a lot about that you posed to me early on is what's the legacy that you want to leave what does that look like what is what is the legacy um, mean to you what i hope is that i've interacted with people in a way that will cause them to want to interact with the world in a certain way. But I'd like to leave the world in a way that, that when I leave, people go, okay, he, he was a positive influence on me or had showed compassion or whatever, and therefore I want to show compassion. You, you would hope that that ripple effect continues. And where I've had a negative impact, you'd like to wait an opportunity to apologize before you perish. But, you know, if if... if if you organize the Wayne Rancourt Memorial Bridge Jump on Christmas Day in 2040 and go, this is the kind of crap Wayne would have done on Christmas Day. And I'm not saying you have to do the bridge jump, but but if somebody says, hey, this is this That's is a great cool. way to I, be. I've, I've told Wendy, you know, when once I'm cremated, take my ashes and go sprinkle them at Lone Pine. Mm. Yeah, you then, know, it, then you're in a good place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's okay. And if there's a handful of people that that wander around and say. You know, my family's in a better place because he, you know, treated us with respect and acted with integrity. That that would be a win. Yeah. Well, I'm very fortunate that you're a part of my life, and uh, I thank you for that. You've been a huge inspiration to me personally, um, and I absolutely couldn't imagine my life without the time that we've spent together and having you in it. So I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for your time. Yeah. And again, thanks for reaching out to the world with a positive message. Um, we're trying. Thank you. A sincere thank you to my friend and guest, Wayne Rancourt, for joining me on this very special episode of the Run From The Norm podcast. I would also like to extend my very sincere appreciation to you for listening and giving this podcast a chance. You can also learn more about the mission of this podcast by checking out our website at www.runfromthenorm.com. And with that, dear listeners, episode number four is a wrap, and we have accomplished our goal of releasing a new episode every week for the month of January. Please stay tuned for the next episode of the Run From The Norm podcast coming in February, and I wish you health and happiness as you continue your journey throughout the day. Remember, getting outside for even 15 to 20 minutes can do wonders for your mental health, and I hope we have succeeded in our mission to motivate with compassion, listen without judgment, inspire with curiosity, one person at a time. Check that mic, make sure it sound right, boy.